This is the VIP Podcast, Virginia in Politics. Let's listen to host Chris Saxman explore the personalities and policies that connect the Commonwealth. The VIP Podcast is brought to you by the VCTA, Broadband Association of Virginia, and Virginia Free. The views and opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the VCTA and Virginia Free or our sponsors. All right, this is Chris Saxman back on the VIP podcast with our latest VIP delegate, Glenn Davis from Virginia Beach. The VIP podcast is brought to you by VCTA, the Broadband Association of Virginia, and Virginia Free, of which I am the executive director. Glenn, how are you this morning? Doing great, Chris. How are you doing? We just got, I just heard you got a bill out of finance, or no, out of education and going over to finance. I did, out of Senate uh, education, of all things. You that's that's awesome. I know. You're that good. It's a great year. <laughs> it's a great, how is your year going? It's, it's going really well, Chris. Um, I mean, you know, we've obviously got a new administration in the mansion. Uh, the governor is pushing, you know, school choice and creating more opportunities for students in schools. And I think that that's been a huge change from what we've seen in the past. And a lot of bills are starting to be talked about and getting through on those initiatives. So I think this is going to be a great year. What, what, is, what is the latest update on moving the ball on school choice? I've heard mixed. Sure. So right now, the ball that's going forward, the I guess the furthest, is the concept of lab schools. And there's a couple different variations out there. But at the end of the day, it's basically allowing schools uh, to create innovative opportunities. And the center version has it where it's with uh, universities of higher education. Uh, what we've talked about in the house could be uh, with private businesses like a Centera or an HCA or Newport New Shipbuilding. But to partner with entities to bring innovation into K through 12 to better prepare our students for that 21st century career as they get out of high school. So where, where do the bills stand right now? You have a, a separate versions in the House and Senate. Are they on a path to reconciliation? They are, speech? they are. The uh, House version has come out of the House. It's in the Senate already. Okay. The Senate version came out and is in the House. So they're both on a path to, uh, to get through. How are you, uh, how is the, uh, the Democratic caucus in the House reviewing these bills? How are they taking these bills? Is it, is, it, is it a party line partisan split? So right now it was a party line split in the House. Uh, the Democrats in the, Senate, in, in the Senate have been working a little bit more uh, in a bipartisan manner to get something through. And at the end of the day, I think we might see a bipartisan bill come out with some good pieces. But it's a work in progress. And uh, I think there's a lot of people on both sides of the aisle interested in it. A lot of school choice advocates, Delegate Davis, don't think this is moving the ball far enough. And we see that a lot in politics, not getting enough done, mm-hmm. you know, it's just never good enough, cha cha cha. We've all heard the lines, mm-hmm. you've been here for a while, I mean, 12 years you've been here now? Uh, ninth year, ninth but it year. seems like 12. <laughs> well, um, why aren't we able to get, or why aren't school choice advocates happy with where things stand right now? Because I think they're not getting the, the tax credit bills that they want, or the ESA bills that they want, and what's the prognosis on those going forward in Virginia? Well, we passed out the education savings account bills out of the House. And the thought is, is they're going to die in the Senate. And I think the, the um, chairperson of Senate, Ed, has kind of already um, uh, said as such. So, I, you know, we still have some challenges over there in a Democratic-controlled Senate. And I think that's the challenge that we're going to face this year and probably next year. So we're trying to move the ball forward on what we can move the ball forward on and having great conversations on other stuff with our colleagues across the aisle and across the chamber. But, uh, but we do need to do some more work to be able to get to an end game on those other policies that so many around the Commonwealth want. Yeah, what are your colleagues on the other side of the, of the, of the Capitol from the, from the Senate, Senator Mason, we were talking about proportional seating in the Senate. Mm-hmm. They don't have that. No. Should they? I think so. I think it's fair. You know, we've done that in the House for a very long time. Uh, the 
the the seating in your in your committees is proportional to your ratio of how Republicans versus Democrats on the floor. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it makes things a little bit more um, it, reason to have conversations of compromise in the House, I think, in some cases, because it's a lot closer in the Senate. As you know, it's a lot different, especially like on commerce. Right. And so I think that it creates better discussions and requires people to have those discussions and compromise when the committees are closer in membership, as a ratio would suggest. Yeah, proportional seating is starting to be, become uh, an impediment uh, to the, um, I guess, the collaborative nature of what a legislature should be, uh, because yeah. you rely on your partisan ability to defeat. Or I mean, both look, both parties have done this. Yes, yes, Republicans are just as guilty as Democrats. But the fact of the matter is, you know, we're we're at a place right now where we see the obvious benefit in the House from having a closely divided House. It's 1210 on committees should be 87 in, in the Senate committees, yep. but it's just not. Right. And and you're right. I mean, people talk to me all the time and they say, Glenn, you know, we should be able to get some of these bills through the Senate because it's a one seat majority that the Democrats have. And now we can t- break the tie with the Republican lieutenant governor. And what we have to inform them is if the bills got to the floor of the Senate, we can probably win. But if we need to get three D votes to get it out of committee, that's where the challenge becomes. That's the challenge. Because we don't have that proportional seating. And when you say Republicans and Democrats both do it, just for clarification, Republicans and Democrats in the Senate do it. Correct. The House, Republicans and Democrats have held to that proportional seating. And I think that's been a good thing. Yeah, for over 20 years. Exactly. Yeah, back when you were there. Well, yeah, it actually preceded me, but we held to it. I remember Morgan Griffith, congressman, was adamant. Even though we had a, you know, almost a two-to-one majority in, in the House, he was adamant uh, that the rules should not change. We should have proportional seating. And I think it's, I think it's one of the... Um, reforms uh, that is long overdue in the Commonwealth. And I think that's something that uh, people should be talking about more openly. Agreed. Because we, we've done all the redistricting. Uh, we've had these reforms come through. Uh, it's changed things. And people are going, yeah, okay, that's fine. The way it's always, always had. There was always that tension mm-hmm. before you break through the reform. Now let's talk about redistricting. How's your new district? So uh, it's interesting. Um, it's, uh, there's a couple of us in that district. A couple of you. A couple of us. Uh, it's uh, Chairman uh, Barry Knight, myself, oh. and uh, Delegate uh, uh, Kelly Fowler are all in that uh, in that district. So, wow. Uh, you know, we got a year to figure it out, but there's a couple of new Do districts. Do you think you have a year? Well, so I'm not an attorney, uh, and I know there's a lawsuit. You don't play one on TV. I don't play one on TV. Didn't spend a night at a Holiday Inn last <laughs> night. But from what I'm hearing, uh, especially as time goes on, Chris, for the, for the course to iron this out, uh, the less likely it is we're going to have to run this year. And those that do have that legal background and things like this have been opining that we're not going to have to run again this year. It will be a 23 as opposed to a 22. And for, the, for the audience, explain what this what this all means. Sure. So um, every 10 years with the new census, we have to run under new district lines. But because of COVID, the census was not completed in time. The new lines were not in front of us in time to run under them this last election cycle last right. November. So the question is, should we have to run this November? under these new lines since they are now available and then turn around and to get back on our cycle, run again in 23, which would have us literally run three years in a row. As much as elected as electives, we probably don't want to run three years in a row. I'm not sure the voters want three years in a row of elections. No, let me back up that thought. No one wants this except for Paul Goldman and I think the NAACP yes, yes. Uh, who, who recently came out uh, against it. Which Does that bring the, when the NAACP comes out and, and says we want, a lot, we want the, the new districts, uh, does that bring a racial tone to the, to the conversation? Like the, the, the opportunity to call someone racist if they don't support 
the redistricting and having a new election this year? No, no. I, I mean, I don't think so. I mean, I know they're they, they're talking about some of the majority minority districts, and and there's some valid thoughts around that. But uh, but I don't think that that's the the tone that's coming out of this whole thing. And and honestly, I think that there's still strong representation around the Commonwealth in all these districts uh, that we have today, and we will have until 23 and continue to have. Right. So um, you know, I know that they've joined that lawsuit by Paul. But uh, but I don't think it adds much weight to this scenario. And, and I don't think, obviously, given where we are um, with the representation that exists now, that uh, that there's any underrepresentation or overrepresentation. <laughs> I don't think we lack for elections here in Virginia. We, we do not. And, you know, we we these districts were the districts uh, that gave a rather significant Democrat majority up until this last year and in the House and now have provided a very slim Republican majority. So when you start seeing that, and you look at the representation uh, by uh, ethnicity in the House. Um, I think we've got some pretty strong districts, and I think these new ones will be just as strong. And it, I don't think it would serve either. Well, I'm talking to Democrats and Republicans. Republicans are tired. Right. They don't. They don't want to have another one. They because they don't want to go through the primary process. They went through a, a, a battle, as you well know, in the statewide elections last time. And now the Democrats are saying, well, we, we kind of don't want it either because the the, the national vibe isn't in our favor. Are, are y'all are you having those sidebar conversations like, yeah, we don't want it either? Well, I, I think everyone's kind of looking for that. When you have an election, unfortunately, things get partisan. And so without the election, it allows people to come together and work together. Right. You don't have sometimes Democrats or Republicans worrying about how it's going to look in a, in a potential primary situation. Right. So having that year off, as, as you know, allows more collaboration, I believe. And that's great to have by having that year off. Additionally, you know, I, I think both sides would like to have that year off. Obviously, we just got through some pretty tough election cycles. Um, have, being someone that has run 10 times in 15 years, um, at local government, obviously statewide, right, these right, seats, right. Uh, I don't mind. You know, if I got to run another year, my wife's used to it. I'm not quite sure what years I actually have had off, you know, in the past. But I will tell you for so many it's not that second year in a row that gets you. Chris, this can be that third year. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's... you know, people ran last year, and that's one thing. And I think if we all need to have that second year run this year, you know, we've got the stamina. We can do it. But that third year, that that's would, the one that's going to get everyone. That would be the, that would be the, uh, the, the third time's a charm. The third time would be the death knell. Yeah. Three, just, bringing I mean, three, that's just a lot. Three years of that. campaigning without stop. That's, uh, yeah. Now we will take the toll on, uh, I think, on, on, you know, people, the candidates. But on the voters, I mean, I don't think voters want to have to deal with partisan electoral processes for three years in a row. Because well, it's so dominant in our culture. But let's talk about the, the partisan nature of the General Assembly this year. People ask me all the time, what do you, because, you know, I'm an outsider, but you know, I know the, the tempo of the place, the temperature um, as well. And you, and you get a vibe. Mm -hmm. and, every, and this year, people ask me, they say, what, what's going on? I'm like, it's mechanical. It seems clinical. People are just running through the motions. Or, and as Monty Mason said in the, in the show earlier this, this, this month, people have to form these coalitions very quickly mm -hmm. to get stuff done. So they're more collaborative because the, because the majorities are so tight. Yes. However, there have been some partisan moments, mm -hmm. some pretty, some pretty uh, sharp ones at that. How is that perceived? In, well, first of all, do you, take, do you think my view is correct? And how does that accept a more partisan attack, say, when Delegate Don Scott goes after the governor? Well, I mean, there's no doubt if, if you are just reading the newspapers or tuning into the floor, you think that there's a lot of partisanship going on. And, and obviously there is some, and don't get me wrong, and Don Scott going after the governor and some of the things. But, you know, Chris, you've been around for a long time, and you know once we're off the floor, 
we all pretty much work very well together. And when you start seeing 2,000 bills come through in 60 days, and you realize the overwhelming majority of them are unanimous, or uh, they are very much in a bipartisan manner, they get out of the House and the Senate. So there are some things that are partisan, but as, as you know, a lot more of the argument isn't R versus D, it's rural versus urban, right? It's, right. it's Nova versus the rest of the state in, in some cases. So in those cases, you've got a lot of people working across the aisle for the, for the systems that they represent. Uh, and on the other side of the issue, our legislators, sometimes R&D, representing their constituents and voters. Um, so I do understand if you read the paper, there's a lot of partisanship, um, but that's not the full story. And we actually all, we really do get along down here. On a, a scale of, of one to 10, how bad do you think the partisanship is this year in the House of Delegates? 10 being the worst of all time. Oh boy, um, you know, we're, we're probably at a five. We're the temp the five. temperature's is, is and, and middle range. We, we have middle range. And I think, you know, we have some new uh, freshmen that have come in. And I think some of them, maybe across the aisle a little bit, think this or thought this was Washington, and this isn't. Um, you know, neither side has horns on their head. Uh, and at the end of the day, if you're going to get something done, you've got to work together. And I think some of them are seeing veterans on both sides of the aisle. We go out, we'll grab a dinner. You know, we'll get together and talk about a bill. And we may not agree at the end of sure, the day, sure. but we have that collaborative conversation. So I think uh, anytime you have a, a large uh, incoming class, uh, I think you get a little bit more of that out of the gate. It's been obviously a new administration coming in, so that kind of raises the bar a little bit. First, well, and a different administration. Yeah, a different because administration. we haven't had a Republican administration since 2012. Right, right. 2012 so, so you, you're going to get the rhetoric from the opposition party, you know, about the new administration. Accurate yeah. or not, doesn't matter. They're going to have their talking points because they have to, right? Um, but when you have the conversations, you know, off the floor, behind closed doors. Um, there's a lot of stuff that I think everyone agrees that this this governor is doing extremely well, and, and they are impressed. And I, I think he's an amazing governor. He's got so much already done and has reached out that olive branch across the aisle early on in his in his administration. Yeah, you mentioned um, and I used, when I used to go home in the district, people say, why do you always talk about abortion? I'm like, we don't ever talk about right. abortion. Nope. The papers talk about abortion. Right. The blogs talk about abortion, but we really don't because right. we're not on the committee. You know, there's 10 different other committees we can serve on. Mm -hmm. you know, we, just, we just don't. But uh, for a new governor coming in, had a, you know, I would say, you know, a not great poll, but I don't think it's indicative of anything else other than we have a deeply divided electorate. And it's, I think it's very reflective of the, of the, uh, the election itself. That all said, how does the governor get a message out with limited media opportunities? Because we just don't have a press corps anymore right. to speak of. Um, so you, it's a very limited perspective that gets into mainstream media. It is. It is. I mean, it is very tough. Uh, you know, he has a press conference or something. And now if it's a contentious issue, the media will pick it up. I mean, ending the mask mandate. Right. Right. I mean, uh, Senator Donovan's bill uh, was high profile. Uh, Delegate Batten had it in the House. The you know, the media had to pick that up. And at the end of the day, that was a bipartisan move. I mean, Senator Peterson, if it wasn't for him, we probably wouldn't have the end of the mask mandates that we have today. So I think in many cases, if it's um, if it's something collaborative, it's very difficult because it's it's um, not newsworthy as far as sometimes the papers and what you know. It, but things that are contentious do pick things up, and that's why we got so much attention on the mask issue and those bills that ended the, the mandate. Is is that the big win for the Youngkins so far? Um, so so far, and I and I and I caveat so far because of I course. think there's a lot of good stuff that's still coming. We have two weeks left in session. I think we're going to see a lot of other good stuff coming what out. But that you, what, was really what's, what's coming out? What can you tell us? So, I mean, I think we're going to see a big win on, uh, I, I think, tax policies. I think we're okay. going to be a, a big win there. 
Um, I think, I mean, the grocery tax, I think is going to be a big, the governor ran on it. Um, it was a huge part of his platform. Oh, no. He promised that tax relief. Chris, I, I work in the polls and, and, you know, the polls I work on election day are, you know, you know, your, your lower middle class. It's, it's people that really are that working family and it resonated with them. They're having trouble making ends meet, especially, you know, on the backside of this whole COVID scenario. And that was important to them. And he's delivering on it. It's going to be a bipartisan, at the end of the day, you know, acceptance of, of that policy. So I think that's going to be big. I think lab schools eventually come to the right place. And, and that gets out. I think that's going to be big. Um, so the governor's got a lot of good stuff that in his first year, I think he's going to get accomplished. But the most important thing, Chris, is it will be accomplished in a bipartisan manner. And I think that's the thing that needs, needs to be highlighted the most is this isn't a Republican House and a Republican Senate and a Republican governor and we get stuff done. This is a Republican House with a slim majority, a Republican governor right. and a Democratic Senate. Uh, and the governor understands that there needs to be compromises and we have to involve uh, the other side of the aisle in the deliberative process to get things done. And he's that type of leader. Are you, and you, do you, especially today with things so toxic in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. they literally don't talk to each other. Right. Uh, we're looking at war in the, in the Eastern Europe, possibly Central Europe eventually. We don't know. We, right. This is an unknown for this generation. It is, it is. Then this is, a, this is dangerous stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think, and it's, I think it's one of the reasons why Virginia is so important in the world politically is because we do have an election every year. We are Virginia after yes. all. There's four, four of the first five presidents. We wrote the found, founding documents. I mean, this is, this is big stuff here. We, we, take this, we take history and politics and government very seriously. Definitely. We have a place. And I think it's incumbent upon Virginia legislators to show that. And I think it's uh, good to hear, but it's difficult to see. Is that fair? I, I, yes, yeah, I think so. Because I mean, no one wants to talk about we're being bipartisan. 20 years ago when I came in after 9-11, everyone was bipartisan. Well, That was the standard. Yeah, and, and we need to be. I mean, everyone, they hear about Washington, and, and they think that you know Virginia down here, it, we're like that. And but at the end of the day, good policies come from a bipartisan agreement. I mean, I looked to, to George Allen, Governor Allen, back when we had welfare reform back in the day. And you were around for that, I think, 95, no, 96? No. You were there? Okay. So, I mean, the Democrats, you know, they had, they had control back then. We had right. a Republican governor. And he worked with them to get welfare reform. And those policies are still in place today because it wasn't just Republicans saying, we're going to reform this. It was Democrats being collaborative. And those policies didn't change. Chris, you look at what the Democrats have done over the last two years when they had the governor's mansion, the Senate, and the House. They didn't involve Republicans in the process. They didn't say, okay, let's work on this and, you know, let's get some bipartisanship here. So all of a sudden, there's a push to start unwinding some of these policies over the last two years. And and you can't blame it because whenever the minority party isn't consulted and we know there's unintended consequences and you block us out, when we get control, we're going to run back to go fix it. However, if it had been collaborative like Governor Allen did back in the mid-90s with welfare reform, a policy that was the model for other states across the nation right. after it was done, um, those policies don't change because everyone's vested in right. those decisions. They were at the table. Right, right. So, so you weren't at the table for the last we two We were years. not at the table for any—I mean, we got a marijuana bill so, out so are you years put, ago. So are you putting that. the Democrats back at the table now? We are. I mean, okay. the, the lab school bills, the Democrats are at the table. With, we would not have the end to the mask mandate if it wasn't for the Democrats being at the table. It, that's, and it's important because at the end of the day, it's not about a win for a year or a right. win for two years. It's, it's a win that is consistent, that stands the test of time. So it's a good policy change that helps not only those of today, but the, the, the citizens of tomorrow and that next generation. And you have to have everyone vested and right. bought into those solutions. 
The Democrats didn't do it last two years. That's why they're such a move to unravel some stuff. But whenever we've had a Democratic governor or Republican governor, I'll, I'll speak to Mark Warner. Because right, right. Mark, I think, was very good with this as well. Uh, when you get both parties at the table, those policies live through that next administration, regardless of who has Yeah, they, they, they go on. Yes. The, the people go, okay, fine, that fight's over. we got another yep. fight to go. And it was All a right. bipartisan agreement. All right, Delegate Glenn Davis, happy warrior from Virginia Beach. Let's talk about you personally. What yep. are you doing these days? What, what books do you like? What movies are you seeing? Who are you oh, my goodness. following in sports? Just real quick, got a couple minutes left. Well, okay, so, Chris, you know, I, I am only married to my wife because I love the Yankees, right? That's so right. That's, I've got to follow that, you know, and it's, um, you know, sports, I have to admit, I, although being a Dallas fan, I, I was rooting for the, for the Rams. You know, that was I, I, smart. Yeah, yeah. Love that team. Love the story there. Um, and uh, so that was great. Uh, books wise, you know, I wish I had more time to, to read. Not, not um, during the session. At just least. not have it. Now, movie wise, uh, American Underdog. I saw that with Shelly okay. last weekend okay. about Kurt Warner. Okay. And we all knew some of the story about Kurt Warner, you know, and literally five years before winning the Super Bowl, he was literally putting, you know, uh, stocking grocery shelves. Right. But there's so much more to that story. It's just unreal. So that was a tremendous story. Love okay. it. Okay, American Underdog. We'll uh, to recommend that to our viewers. And uh, we appreciate you coming into the VIP podcast brought to you by VCTA, the Broadband Association of Virginia and Virginia Free. It's great to have you, Glenn. Wish you the very best during the session. And uh, hopefully you'll be home on March 12th. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me. DA. Thank you for joining us. I'm Chris Saxman. Thanks for coming on. You can follow us on Spotify, Apple, and YouTube. Please subscribe and share, like as well. Thank you.